for making the movies. Today we have some good stuff on the docket. We have comic book movies not based on mainstream IPs. What qualifies as mainstream for this particular episode? Uh, well, anything that's under the Marvel or DC umbrella. As far as non-mainstream goes, that can be Dark Horse, IDW, Dynamite, comic strips. There's a lot of breathing room here. The four films we'll be looking at today are 1990's Dick Tracy, 1991's The Rocketeer, 2010's Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and 2013's Snowpiercer. Spoilers are a possibility, but now let's get into the movies. Oh, we got movies! influence of big boy caprice yet with caprice's money in the pockets of police and local government officials tracy's endeavor seems to be in vain meanwhile tracy's relationship with tess trueheart is being strained tracy must either commit to her or end it the presence of the seductive vamp breathless mahoney isn't making matters easier Caprice's plan is to bring all of the mobsters in the area under his leadership. Some of the most dangerous members of this rogues gallery include Flattop, Itchy, Pruneface, and Influence. A mysterious figure known as the Blank is trying to make their way into the city and run the rackets. Thirty years later, Dick Tracy remains a divisive film among moviegoers and critics. That still doesn't change the fact that this is a technological marvel of a film yet still feels like it was made with human hands, a notion lost today in the CGI-dependent MCU and DCEU. That lack of humanity in the filmmaking process may be the meaning behind Scorsese's theme park comment towards contemporary comic book movies. Richard Silbert's production design, paired with the lighting of Gary Tandro, and you have one of the most beautiful-looking movies of the 1990s. Costume supervisors Elisabetta Baraldo and Bruce R. Hoggart add a flair to these larger-than-life characters. The small army of mad artists helped to bring the city that, did, that Tracy protects to life is just unbelievable. John Caglione's work as the makeup effects of these special characters was the stuff of nightmares. Case in point, Steve the Tramp. It was all these technical elements that both Siskel and Ebert praised the film for. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this movie is the use of makeup, especially in that opening poker scene and some of the other scenes where these really weird, strange-looking people come along, like Dustin Hoffman playing Mumbles, right. or a big boy uh, Caprice. Caprice, whatever his name is. Yeah. The, the Al Pacino inside that makeup and inside that costume uh, really steals the show. It's a fabulous performance. But what I like most about the movie was 
how it creates an entirely different world for us to look at. And what I'd like to do right now is take a very specific look at Dick Tracy's original movie, World. Let's look at a scene where Tracy follows the kid back to a tar paper shack he lives in with his sadistic mentor in crime. A scene that really shows off the special effects and art direction of the movie. What we're looking at here is a completely artificial creation that exists only within a movie studio and only within the imaginations of the people who made this film. This is not a real city. These are not real buildings. That's not a real horizon. These are not real interiors. These are not real exteriors. Nothing in this entire movie from beginning to end exists anywhere except in the imagination of Warren Beatty and the people that he's put together as a team to create this movie. The art director, the visuals effects people, the uh, optical illusion people, the mad artists, everyone in this movie has worked together in order to create a, a new universe that doesn't exist anywhere except in Dick Tracy. Danny Elfman provided the music score for the film, which many have criticized as just a reworking of his score for Tim Burton's Batman. about the likes of John Williams and Bernard Herrmann, yet Elfman is overshadowed by the contributions of Stephen Sondheim. Sondheim's music shares that carefree, homely feel of Bob Crosby and the Andrews Sisters. Live alone and like it, free as the birds in the trees. High above the briars, live alone and like it, I do whatever I please. When my heart desires, free to hang around or fly at any old time. Most of all, no guarantees That's my only motto Free of obligation Only the murmuring breeze As an obligato Live alone and like it Why is that such a crime? Free to go the two Free to say I'm going Dick Tracy is near flawless Some of the best character actors To ever step in front of a camera Are in this one movie William Forsyth Seymour Cassell, Charles Durning, James Tolkien, R.G. Armstrong, Henry Silva. Al Pacino really put his screen chewing to use in this film. Big Boy may be one of the more quotable villains, uh, given his penchant for twisting famous quotes around. I know, and I'm going to miss you, but all's fair in love and business. Benjamin Franklin. His outburst at his top henchman is one of the greatest lines in comic book films. I want him dead. Both of them. I want this no face dead, and I want Tracy dead. What's the matter? You bums forgot how to kill people? Doesn't your work mean anything to you anymore? Have you no sense of pride in what you do? No sense of duty? No sense of destiny? I'm looking for generals. What do I got? Foot soldiers. I want Tracy dead. Madonna does fine as Breathless Mahoney compared to her other acting efforts. She played up the sexuality as far as PG would allow for at the time. 
Members of the supporting cast have their moments. Dustin Hoffman as Mumbles never fails to get a laugh. Mandy Patinkin as 88 Keys manages to give a minor character some depth as both a very weaselly wannabe gangster and a stunning singing voice. Paul Serino, James Kahn, and Dick Van Dyke put in small but eye-catching turns. For a child actor, Charlie Cosmo as the kid didn't grate on my nerves. He also appeared in classics like What About Bob and Hook. What's the one flaw in the casting? Warren Beatty leaves much to be desired in his depiction of Tracy. Surrounded by over-the-top performances, Beatty comes off as stiff, muted. This may be a contrast to the supporting roles, but that absence of any personality makes him come off as dull. I wasn't the only one to feel this way. The film looks just great. The weakest link in it, however, for me is Warren Beatty as actor who plays a downsized, more contemporary Tracy, even though he's wearing period clothes, a yellow hat, and coat. The film is glorious to look at, and a true invention, and individual performers, notably Pacino, are first rate. I just wish the crime story were a little tighter and that Beatty had played Tracy as more of a hero. Otherwise, it is a truly original creation. I would rather have seen someone more commanding like Harrison Ford or Bruce Campbell take on the role of Tracy with Beatty still in the director's chair. If there was one issue I had with the supporting cats, it's missing the opportunity of giving a scene between Al Pacino's big boy Caprice and Catherine O'Hara's Texie Garcia. If her performances in films like Beetlejuice and the plethora of Christopher Guest mockumentaries are any indication, there could have been some serious sparks. Instead, she's just another name in a long list. Overall, Dick Tracy is a film worth watching because it is a technical masterpiece. The matte paintings, the set design, the colorful attire, the rich lighting, the soundscape, and the wealth of character actor talent on display, it is well worth a revisit. have stolen an object from Howard Hughes and are being chased by the cops. They make their way to Bigelow Airfield. One of the gangsters hides the object in a hangar before being arrested. Soon, Cliff Secord, a young pilot, and his mechanic friend Peabody find the object, and it turns out to be a rocket. Both are in awe of their discovery. In the middle of an air show, one of the airplanes malfunction and fall to the ground. Cliff dons the rocket and rescues the pilot out of the plane. The mysterious hero becomes a hit with the media and given the moniker Rocketeer. But it also gets the attention of the wrong people. Actor Neville Sinclair has hired local mobster Eddie Valentine to go find the rocket. Sinclair sends his own henchman, the monstrous Luthor. He soon finds out that a co-star of his film, Jenny, is connected to the Rocketeer and woos her in the hopes of finding out who has it. Taking cues from the serials of the past and classic comic books, the Rocketeer pays homage to classic Hollywood. With personalities like Howard Hughes and a cameo by a talented W.C. Fields impersonator, the time period is cleverly presented. 
The character of Sinclair is based heavily on Errol Flynn to the point where he's a Nazi spy, which has since been debunked. Valentine is a mobster molded from fiction like Cagney as well as history like Capone. The Rocketeer is a luscious piece of Hollywood land-inspired filmmaking. Credit goes to Joe Johnson for making a great film out of a solid script. If he sounds familiar, he directed Captain America, The First Avenger. It was from his work on this film that put him in the position to direct the Captain America film. One difference is that Rocketeer doesn't turn into an effects reel in the last half. Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio wrote the film script and gave it a near-universal appeal. Gangster, screwball comedy, action, and romance were incorporated into this one film. Few movies can do this without making the elements feel forced. Both Bilson and DeMeo provided a great example of blending multiple genres into one film. James Horner provided the sweeping music score. The man has no shortage of great works. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Star Trek III, Search for Spock, An American Tale, Project X, Willow, The Land Before Time. He did the music for Aliens. Remember when every action movie trailer used the same piece of music from his Alien score? for Lothar, who was inspired by actor Rondo Hatton. Baker is a legend in the field of makeup effects, along the side the likes of Tom Savini, Jack Pierce, and Dick Smith. Baker's best-known work would have to be an American werewolf in London. Bill Campbell makes for a strong lead in the film as Cliff. His chemistry with Alan Arkin as Peabody and Jennifer Connelly as Jenny add depth and move the plot along. Arkin plays up the comic relief, when Connolly is on screen, you can't take your eyes off of her. Timothy Dalton has hints of Bond, a criminally underrated Bond at that, in his performance as Sinclair. Dalton as James Bond was Daniel Craig before Daniel Craig. Paul Sorvino lends much credibility to the film as Eddie Valentine. Tiny Ron Taylor is hard to forget as Lothor. Taylor would later go on to appear in Ace Ventura Pet Detective and the Yojimbo-inspired Last Man Standing. Terry O'Quinn isn't on screen for long, but he makes the most of it as Howard Hughes. You probably know him from the Stepfather series and Lost. Much like Dick Tracy, there's plenty of character actors and bit parts in The Rocketeer. Dick Warlock, Michael Myers in Halloween 2, has a bit part. William Boyett, MST3K fans will know him from the Last Clear Chance short. I suppose I should have gone in for a few minutes. But I just couldn't do it. Because of the tear in the sprocket hole. Burying someone from a family. Someone cut down in the prime of life. Is one of the perks of this well, job. Well, it's hard to take. I could say goodbye from here. Goodbye! Oh. You also have Clint Howard. You have William Sanderson of Blade Runner. Coen Brothers regular John Polito, who was in Miller's Crossing and The Big Lebowski. You have Eddie Jones of Lois and Clark. Some really good talent that you may not immediately recognize by name, but you'll know them by face. 
This is a noteworthy title for genre fans. The film focuses on the characters without being consumed by excess, whether it's effects or maybe some poorly drawn characterization. If you long for a film that has strong writing and developed characters, I highly recommend The Rocketeer. He and me. Don't you talk to me about grammar. I dislike you, capiche? Tell it to the cleaning lady on Monday. What? Because you'll be dust by Monday. Um. Because you'll be pulverized in two seconds. And the cleaning lady? She cleans up. Dust. She dusts. Scott Pilgrim is a 20-something bass player with hipster tendencies. He's a member of an indie rock band, Sex Bobomb. He's currently dating Knives Chow, a 17-year-old student, and he is visibly enjoying that relationship they share. One day, Scott meets Ramona Flowers while she is traveling through his dreams. He is immediately smitten with her. At the expense of his relationship with Knives, he pursues Ramona. In order for Scott to date Ramona, he has to contend with her seven evil exes. The exes have banded together to defeat Scott. The film has detrimental flaws. The character of Scott is unlikable and hard to root for. Whiny, self-centered, and represents a clique that is often looked down upon. Casting an actor like Michael Sarah doesn't help. Another problem was the relationship between Scott and Ramona. For Scott to be with Ramona, he has to deal with her baggage. He has to confront people of Ramona's past, a past Scott has nothing to do with, yet it's his responsibility to take them out. Scott is absolutely miserable and tired when he's at the midpoint of the challenge. There is nothing in the Scott-Ramona relationship that shows me that they're meant to be together. This is a very toxic relationship, especially when compared to the relationship between Scott and Knives. In the opening scenes, he's happy, he emotes, the DDR ninja game shows that they're literally in sync with each other. Director Edgar Wright brought Brian Lee O'Malley's characters to the big screen and was effective in the casting for the most part. Wright made a name for himself with comedy gems like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, yet Scott Pilgrim suffers from an abundance of style and little substance which extends to Bill Pope's cinematography and the editing duo of Jonathan Amos and Paul Machlis. The music score by Nigel Goodrich was fine, just none of the tracks really stood out to me. Beck helped out a lot by writing the Sex bob music that was actually performed by the cast. Let's be honest, the most memorable piece of music from the film was the use of the fairy fountain from Legend of Zelda. who can divide an audience. Some may find his geeky mannerism endearing, while others just find him insufferable. By the time Scott Pilgrim vs. the World was was released, he outworn his welcome after films like Superbad, Juno, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. That divide may have contributed to the film's poor box office performance. Yes, folks, this movie was a bomb. A loss in the neighborhood of $73 million. Mary Elizabeth Winsett as Ramona is very passive and keeps to herself. It makes sense, given her past. She doesn't want another name to add to her list of Alexes. But we need some charm. We need something for us to see her as a viable alternative to Knives. The supporting cast greatly outshines the leads of Sarah and Winstead. Kieran Culkin is hilarious as Wallace, 
Allison Pill shows some great spunk as Kim. Aubrey Plaza has her moments as Julie. Ellen Wong is sweet as knives. Chris Evans and Brandon Routh are the highlights of the evil exes. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World is a film I find myself enjoying less and less with each viewing. Trust me, I'm well aware of the cult fandom behind this movie. Doesn't change the fact that this film has some serious issues, mainly with the two protagonists and the abysmal relationship they have. I cannot, in good conscience, recommend Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. of Snowpiercer's world, there was an experiment that was meant to reverse the effects of climate change. The experiment worked, but to the detriment of humanity. The world has become a frozen wasteland with the remaining survivors living in a class-based train running on perpetual motion. The poor people are relegated to the tail end of the train, while the rich continue to live their lavish lifestyle towards the front. In 2031, the lower-class survivors are planning another rebellion to take over the front of the train. Led by Curtis, the people at the tail of the train fight their way towards the front engine. Among his top allies are Edgar, the elder Gilliam, and Tanya. They're joined by Nam Gung and Yana. As they get closer to the front, the resistance gets more vicious and the stakes get higher. Science fiction tinged with the timely social issue of the wealth gap is a hot trend, yet what Snowpiercer does is tell a simple story with a message and commentary in the background. It's in the subtext. Other films put the message in front and feel the need to hit the audience over the head with it. This focus on story and not the message will give Snowpiercer a longer shelf lifespan. The movie makes no qualms about mocking the ideology of the wealthy and their philosophical darling, Ayn Rand. The movie goes as far as to have Tilda Swinton in the role of Mason. From her costume design to delivery of her dialogue, Mason is Ayn Rand. See this? This is death. In this locomotive we call home, there is one thing that between our warm hearts and the bitter cold. Clothing? Shields? No. Order. Order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. We must, all of us, on this train of life, remain in our allotted station. We must, each of us, occupy our preordained particular position. Would you wear a shoe on your head? Of course you wouldn't wear a shoe on your head. A shoe doesn't belong on your head. A shoe belongs on your foot. A hat belongs on your head. I am a hat. You are a shoe. I belong on the head. You belong on the foot. Yes, so it is. The movie makes it clear how it feels about her socioeconomic politics and is a nice cinematic rebuttal to the Atlas Shrugged films that, are, that were still being made uh, despite being box office bombs. Having been a fan of the host, director Bong Joon-ho, 
delivers another satisfying movie experience. He takes the French graphic novel. Uh, I, boy, I'm, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but I'll, I'll have it in the description. And delivers the best movie of this kind since the likes of Ghost World or Road to Perdition. Uh, this is a graphic novel-based film, yet the execution is in a manner that doesn't let on that it's based on a comic. As far as comic book-based movies for 2014, uh, this is neck and neck with Captain America Winter Soldier. On a technical level, the film is beautiful. Uh, the cinematography captures the action wonderfully. The editing by the duo of Steve M. Cho and Chung Gu Chim uh, keeps the pace steady. Uh, the production design uh, gives the futuristic setting a rustic, grimy feel. The music score by Marco Beltrami is subtle, but makes the audience know it's there. Speaking of Captain America, Chris Evans gives his best performances I've ever seen him give. He shows he has such a wide range. He can be determined. He can be cocky. He can be remorseful. He stated that he would like to retire from acting and go on to directing. Uh, his role as Curtis shows that he is greatly matured as an actor. I would love for him to see him work on a movie from the director's channel as a change from being in front of the camera. He has a strong supporting cast to work with. Along with the aforementioned Swinton, you have screen veterans like John Hurt, Jamie Bell, and Octavia Spencer. My two favorite actors from the host, Song Kang-ho and Goa Sung, are back as well. Allison Pill from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World has a small but memorable turn as a pregnant school teacher. There is one actor that is spoiled by some of the marketing material, but he makes an amazing cameo and it deserves to be kept a secret. It was one of the best cameos since Bill Murray in Zombieland. Snowpiercer is science fiction that doesn't address its audience in a condescending manner. Transformers doesn't shy away from treating its audience like idiots. Snowpiercer gives its audience respect for their intelligence. There's a lot going on between its ears and has plenty of heart. Great cast, a talented director, a strong story, and it has something to say about the world we live in. And that finishes this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. For the next episode, I want to take a look at a few movies to honor icons of black cinema. I have in mind to review Coffee with Pam Greer, Boss with Fred the Hammer Williamson, The Original Dolomites with Ray Rudy Moore, and I'm Gonna Get You, Sucka, from Keenan Ivory Wayans. That episode will drop on February 24th. If you enjoy this content and would like to see the program grow, a one-time donation via PayPal would be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Any questions or inquiries can be sent to my Gmail. All of that in the description below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Making the Movies. Take care, folks. Tell me who set me up, huh? You want Big Boy to hear that? <laughs> uh. <laughs>
What do you think, Mumbles? Big boy did it. 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 Big